0: And then while you're getting your outline out and open, you're going to notice that, oh my goodness, it's just like one verse today. What's going on? Um, We did this summer, we went through the whole book of Philippians, and we did about 30 verses per week. And um, we only have one verse this week, but if you look at the verse, it's enough. One is enough. And as you're looking at that, I wanted to give kind of a disclaimer, but you guys have done so good. Thank you for taking all of your Kids zone students to Kids Zone because today's message is PG-13, okay? There's a couple of middle schoolers that could hang with us, but we do have a middle school class as well. So thank you for that. Um, it's not only better for them over there, it's a lot less boring for them over there. And if you had one with you today, you would be answering a whole lot of questions about... What is that S word that we're going to be talking about uh, today? Um, the, other, the other disclaimer or the other thing I need to mention is that today's topic requires me to be extra blunt um, today. But I don't want to come across as insensitive. I don't want to come across as judgmental. And I certainly don't want to come across as over-alarming but there are some things that I need to say today, and I need to just say them bluntly and directly. I have no doubt that you're not going to go home and on the way home look at each other and go, "What was he trying to say?" You know, uh, you're, you're going to know exactly what I'm trying to say because I'm just going to say it over and over and over again. Because here's the deal: you know, as your pastor, I love you, and. If this subject matter makes you uncomfortable, just know it makes me even more uncomfortable. Okay, even though I just did this for a, I survived the first one. Um, and in fact, I said in the early service, probably the only person who's comfortable on campus today is Pastor Rich. Because he doesn't have to get up here and say, he's like, oh, I don't have to say that. He had to deal with some uncomfortable stuff, a little bit of uncomfortable stuff last week. And he did a fantastic job. Um, How many of you were here? He had the musical chairs going on. Remember, he had the the high chair and the stool and the throne. How many of you were here for musical chairs or you watched it online? Very helpful if you'll go back and kind of catch up online, especially in this series, because unlike most series, this series, message one sets the foundation for message two. Message three, the foundation is set with message one and two. It's not quite a prerequisite, but it really helps. And we're going to be talking about kind of what chair are you in again today some of the times as we talked about the naive that are in the high chair and the, the, the fools who are on the stools. And we said not only are they fools, but they're, they're dumb, they're foolish, and they're the S word, stupid, Right? And then in the throne that he mentioned, those are the scoffers who are like, I don't care what the Bible says. All you Christians don't know what you're talking about anyway. And they're the ones that they're already an expert on their own life and on yours too. So they typically, they don't listen. It's not my intention today. Um, Just know if you're uncomfortable, I'm uncomfortable too. But it's not my intention to dredge up any pain. Um, For those of you who have struggled in this area or even messed up in this area, however, I have talked with over the last 30 years as a pastor, I have talked with enough people who have either gone over the edge, over the cliff in this area of their life, either as an innocent victim, their marriage was pulled over the edge, or as the person who messed up. And they've almost all encouraged me, even again today, people were texting me, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for sharing this. I wish I had heard this 20 years ago. Um, Almost all of them have encouraged me to share these things for those who have not gone over the edge or over the brink, but think that they can live on the edge. Because honestly... Most of us, we like, to know, we like to know how close to the edge we can get without going over, don't we? We want to know where the line is, where is the, the sin line or the point of no return line. And we like to, you, you know, we, 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 we like, there's, there's a little bit of thrill in kind of flying close to the flag. There's a little bit of thrill in, in seeing how close to the edge can, can we get without crashing over. And many of us, we like to live our lives in the danger zone, as long as we don't go over. I've shared this story publicly a couple of times, but it's been a while. Maybe you haven't heard it. Forty-five years ago, when I was about ten years old, my sister and I were traveling with my cousins and my aunt and uncle uh, to North Carolina. It was a road trip. Do you remember those? Anybody go on a road trip when you were a kid? Anybody ever go on a road trip when you were a kid in the way back in one of those station wagons? Do you remember the station wagons with the seats that, were, that would fold down in the back? And it made kind of a play area. You could have your suitcases and your coolers and, you know, the kids could be back there. This was before we understood, apparently, what those seat belt things were for, right? In my life, seat belts were just a, a decoration, and we were loaded up with coolers and everything because we usually stop for a picnic lunch. Back in the 70s there wasn't a there wasn't a fast food joint at every exit kind of a thing. So you would actually stop at a rest area and utilize those picnic tables that are still there. They're made out of concrete. They'll be here till Jesus comes. Um And we would actually bring our own, like, peanut butter and jelly and ham or bologna and and mayonnaise. And we would make our sandwiches. Your kids have no concept of what I'm talking about. We would make our sandwiches, cut them in little triangles, and we would eat, you know, at the rest area. It was just a common thing with a lot of people would do this. And on this particular day, we had... We, oh, and by the way, it was like that was the only time we stopped, was to eat or get gas. There was no other stopping. Did you guys grow up like this? Like, you had to do your business when you stopped for lunch, or you stopped at the gas station, or you were in trouble. You did your business or else. And some of us experienced for or else, and that was terrible. So we had just stopped at this rest area, and we had just finished our lunch, and and, uh, our little sisters um, were 8 were seven and eight years old, and me and my cousin, we were a couple of ten-year-olds. And um, we needed to go to the bathroom. Now, we're ten, so let's face it, we're men. Okay? When you're in two digits, when you go from nine to ten, you become a man. We took off to the restrooms, and my aunt calls out across the parking lot, Don't talk to strangers! Like, please. We knew that. They taught us that in school. What do we look like a couple of kids? We're 10. So we did our business, and we came out of the bathroom, and there was this weirdo guy there. He was bald. He had tattoos all over him. He was wearing, not that that's so weird, but he was wearing this silky, like, circus outfit, like, court gesture outfit. And he had these crazy eyes. He was about as strange as a stranger could be. And then he asked, How are you guys doing? To this day, I have no idea why we didn't run. Instead, we answered, fine. He asked, where are we from? Where are you from? Miami. Where are you guys headed? Franklin, North Carolina. He said, hey, you guys want to buy some fireworks? (laughs) He did. That's what he said. (laughs) We're like, yeah. He says, they're over here in my car. We're like, oh, how much are they? He says, I'm going to make you a deal. So we walk over to his car. Two 10-year-olds. We're men. Now, this is broad daylight, but we're still a little cautious. We didn't get close enough for him to grab us. And we weren't getting close enough for him to snatch us up and throw us in that car. That's for sure. Because God is my witness. The next thing I knew... I felt a hand grab the back of my neck. While we were looking at the fireworks at what we thought was a safe distance from weirdo dude, another car had pulled up. Another man had gotten out of that car. We hadn't seen the car. We hadn't seen the man. And he grabbed us by the back of the neck and he threw us both. In his car. And sped off. Now time out. We'll finish this story at the end. Because I don't want anyone leaving during the middle of this (laughs) difficult message. I know some of you are looking online now. You're going to go back to the other service and you're going to try to listen. Let me, let me tell you another scenario. Let me ask you to use your imagination. This is your story now. I want you to imagine that you are with one of your loved ones. Maybe it's one of your kids. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a sibling. Somebody that you care about. And you are about to walk across a busy four-lane, six-lane highway. And you're standing at the intersection with somebody you love very much and you're standing on one side of the highway, and you've got to cross all four, all six lanes. This is like State Road 46 now that it's, now that it's so wide, or it's like Lake Mary Boulevard has always been, or, or if you're Volusia County, it's, it's like crossing 1792. And and you're there with your loved one, and you have looked both ways, and to the best of your ability, you have calculated, you know, the, the speed and the gaps and the traffic flow, and... And you realize that the person you're with, that they're telling you something that's important to them. And, and as they're telling you, you realize they're zoned out. They don't even, they're not paying attention to the traffic at all. So you feel a heavier weight. And you're trying to listen because this is obviously important what they're telling you, or it's important to them what they're telling you. You kind of want to listen. But you are more focused on, on what's, what's most important, and that is we've got to cross this road and we've got to stay alive. And you're trying to listen, but you're also trying to make sure you get across. And about halfway across, you're across two lanes that you realize that at the current rate, you have not timed it very well because you realize that at the current rate, you're not going to make it. And your only chance isn't to turn back because you don't even have time to turn back and try to figure out can we even make it back. You realize you've got to run. And they're not really paying attention because they're telling you something important. But in that split second, you have to make a decision. You have to run, and you have to get them to run with you. What do you say at that moment? Let me tell you what you don't say. You don't say something like, listen, excuse me, but when you consider the velocity of that dump truck and the traffic that's coming... You, you you don't take the what do you you know what you say you say run there's no time for explanation there's no time because you see what they don't see you can explain when you get to the other side you can even apologize when you get to the other side because you may startle them like i just startled you you may scare them like hopefully i scared you You may freak them out. But you're going to say to them, run. That's today's message, basically. Today's message is basically me saying to you what God wants to say to you, which is run. Because we're in this series and we're talking about we've all done some dumb stuff in our lives. Some things where we look back and we wonder, why was I so stupid? Why did I do what What was I thinking? We're saying things to ourselves like, why did I move in with her? Or why did I move in with him? Or, or, or why did I go there? Or why did I get involved in that? Or why did I marry her? Or why did I marry him? Or why did I marry someone just like him the second time? Why did I lease that? Why did I buy that? Why did I take that job? Why did I move to that city? How could I have been so dumb, so foolish, so, S-word, stupid? And, and then the biggest thing, the biggest regret in our heart when we look back is, is we say to ourselves, we should have known better. And we watch other people make similar decisions. And we think they ought to know better. In fact, you see people in your world, in your company, in your family, in your life, and you even talk about them with I can't believe they're doing that. Can you believe they're doing that? They should know better. Why can't they see what is so obvious? But you know what? It wasn't obvious to us all those years ago, and it isn't obvious to them today either. We've all done things we regret. So the best question, if you're looking at your review notes at the top of the outline there, I want you to jot jot it in. You already know what to write in if you've been here the last couple of weeks. The best question of all is, what is the wise thing to do? Write in the word wise. What is the wise thing to do? Not, is it right? Is it wrong? Is it legal? Is there a Bible verse against it? Pastor, will this send me to hell? Those are all questions, but those aren't even near the best question the best question is what's the wise thing to do and we expounded on that a little bit we said what is, in light of my past experience right in the word past in a lot of my current circumstances right current in a lot of my future hopes and dreams right down future what is the wise thing for me to do what is the wise thing for me to do and this is the key because, you see, I have a unique blend of my past. It's not your past. It's my past. And I have a unique blend of current circumstances and responsibilities. Those aren't the same as your current circumstances or responsibilities. And I have a unique blend of my future hopes and dreams. That might not necessarily be your future hopes and dreams. But when you add up my, my blended, my unique blended past, my unique blended circumstances, and my unique blended future hopes and dreams, then what the wise thing for me to do might not be the same as the wise thing For you to do or for anyone else to do. The greatest thing that we can do is to start asking this question at every single layer in every single arena or area of our lives. So today, for a few minutes, I want to focus just on one area, one arena of our lives. There's really three key areas that are the most important areas that we ask this, what's the wise thing to do? Light of my past, light of my current, light of my future, what's the wise thing to do? And that's in the arenas of our time, our money, and our morality. As we think of our morality, our sexuality, and the decisions that we make in terms of what is right and wrong morally, we need to ask the question, what is the wise thing for me to do? And it's an incredibly powerful question because all of us have made, probably all of us have made bad moral decisions that we regret. They may have been extreme or they may have been not so extreme. They may have been back in high school. I hope your worst moral decision was in high school. Unless you're just in college, just starting college, then you learn from... Wouldn't it be great if the worst thing we ever... I'm 55. The worst thing I ever did in my life was when I was 16 years old. Wouldn't that be like, whoa! It's been a great... What is that, 40 years? 40 years! Holy moly. 39 years. But you know what? Your worst moral decision may have been last weekend. Or last night. All of us, though, have made decisions in terms of relationships that we got into. Where we have would have said, you know, I've crossed some lines morally that I wish I would have never crossed. Some have gone too far. Some have gotten too involved. We did things. We said things. We maybe hugged people, kissed people, been with people, or hooked up with people that we had no business being with or hooking up with. We would say that those are our biggest regrets. And the reason why wisdom is such an important issue and so important is because before we made that wrong moral decision, we made a series of unwise decisions that seemed to get us very close to the moral edge. Before we made the decision that sent us over, we made a series of unwise decisions. Would you write this down? All of your moral, wrong moral decisions were introduced by a series of unwise decisions. And we blitzed through those barriers. We blitzed through those red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag. Because they're all saying, that's not wise That's not wise. That's not wise. That's not wise. But that's the way we get through those warnings is we say to ourselves, but there's nothing wrong with this. 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 How did I get into this mess? God help me. I'll never do this again or let this ever happen again. And all of us have that line. Wherever that line is for you. Or wherever you have made that wrong moral decision and crossed the line, before you crossed that line, before you went over the edge, you made a series of unwise decisions. And your unwise decisions set you up for moral failure. Maybe somebody that you filled up your life with. It may be an emotional relationship that you got too involved with. All the things that, they take you by surprise at the event. How how did I do this? I can't believe I would ever do that. But it really didn't take us by surprise in terms of the decisions that we made on the way up to the event. Let me illustrate it the best way I can. Common story with fake names. Let's call our story... Characters, Sheila and Frank. Totally fake. You name you can use whatever names you want, so sorry if there's a Sheila or a Frank here. Karen's been taking a hit, so I had to use Sheila. Um, <laughs> Sheila and Frank, fake names, but they work in the same office. You've heard this story before. Frank is married. Sheila's single. Sheila is younger than Frank. And Sheila is attractive. Frank notices, but Frank is a committed husband and a committed father, and he made a vow, and he plans to keep it. One afternoon, he thinks, I should ask Sheila to go to lunch. It's professional. We will work and talk about work stuff. Nothing wrong with eating lunch. I mean... Everybody eats lunch. We're going to eat lunch in a public restaurant where there will be a lot of people around us. If anybody asks, I'll say, this is Sheila. We're eating lunch like everybody. A few weeks go by. One night, the team's working late. And it's time for dinner. And Frank says, well, I should ask Sheila to go to dinner. I mean, we had lunch. What happened at lunch is what's going to happen at dinner. Everybody eats dinner. My family eats dinner. Good grief. I mean, think of what would happen to the economy if people stopped eating dinner. We're going to go to dinner and support the economy. And nothing's going to happen to me because we're just eating dinner. If anybody walks by the table, I'll just say, hey, this is Sheila. We eat lunch and we're having dinner. Sheila's thinking, well, he's married. But, hey, we're just having dinner. We had lunch, Right. And then Frank starts to tell Sheila all about what's going on in his family and how things are not too good in the marriage. And she's thinking, well, nothing wrong with him confiding in me. I'm a friend. I mean, counselors make money doing this. I'm doing this for free. I'm helping this guy out. In fact, I may have some insight to help him with his wife because she doesn't sound like too nice of a person the way he's talking about her. But I'm a listening ear, and everybody needs a listening ear. In fact, I think there's something in the Bible about bearing each other's burdens. And I am bearing Frank's burden. I'm just listening and bearing his burden. I'm probably getting extra credit for this in heaven at some point. Listening to him talk about his family and his wife, and I'm probably... I mean, I never even patted his hand as much as I wanted to because we're just friends. And we're just having dinner. And eventually that leads to this, but you already know where this is going, right? But at any point in our story, if you or I or any of their friends had had pulled them aside and said, Frank, 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 what are you doing? Sheila, Sheila, what are you thinking? You know what they would have said? Hey, I haven't done anything wrong. We just had lunch. Hey, I haven't done anything wrong. We just had dinner. Hey, you know, I'm just listening. We're just Friends. We have not crossed any lines. We have not done anything wrong. We have not crossed any moral boundaries. We have not done anything wrong. But you hear this story and you already know where it's going. Because one night she invites him in. There's nothing wrong with going inside someone's home. And, and, And what is one hug? I mean, everybody hugs. I've seen people hug at church again, another religious experience. And it goes on and on. I don't need to finish the story, but here's my point. Every wrong moral decision is always introduced by a series of unwise decisions. And if you're on the high chair, it's just because you're naive. And if you're on the stool, it's because you're foolish and you think it'll never happen to me if you're on the throne, you don't really care what the Bible says or God says. You're not one to be wise. You already know it all anyway. Here's what I want you to write down. We justify our unwise decisions with this justification. There is nothing wrong here. That's what we say to justify the one wise decisions that pull us closer and closer and closer to the edge. Hey, there's nothing wrong. This isn't sinful. There's no Bible verse against this. I'm not doing anything wrong. And here's the problem. Is this, wrong? is this the wrong thing to do is the wrong question to ask. That's why the best question ever is, what is the wise thing for Frank to do? What is the wise thing for Sheila to do? What is the wise thing for me to do? Because the wise thing will lead you away. From moral disaster the wise thing will keep you far from the edge and far from the cliff when you find yourself in a situation where you've gone too far in a relationship maybe it's just emotional or maybe it's just a little bit physical not physical all the way physical but way too physical considering you're married or she's married Or you're both married, but not to each other. You got yourself into this by a series of unwise decisions that led you to the brink of disaster. And you got to the brink of disaster, and then it was just, blink, it didn't take much to send you over the edge. Because you've been living your life, morally, on the edge. And when you find yourself saying, how did this happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It's always the same. You ignored the principle of wisdom. You justified it every step of the way, all the way to the edge of the cliff, to the brink of disaster, because it wasn't wrong. So you thought it was right. But you were asking the wrong question. And consequently, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Probably with the wrong people. So here's what I want you to write down. In us is a desire to know exactly where the line is at every level. We want to know how far is too far? How far do the consequences kick in? How much fun can I have without it being sin? The way they ask me as a pastor is, is there a Bible verse against this? Or some people say, is doing this going to send me to hell? We want to live right there, right? right at the edge where I can, I can see over the line, but I don't want to go over the line. Anybody remember high school? I went to high school in the 80s. That seems like so long ago. 35th. 35th. Wow. 35th reunion coming up. Seems like a long... No, 37th reunion. 35th wedding anniversary. Oh, my goodness. I just aged two years before your eyes. We... Remember, did any of you have a curfew in high school? Remember when you turned 16 you got the keys to the car, some of you? Did you have a cur- Did anybody have a curfew? Am I the only one who had a curfew? Yeah. So, I don't know when your curfew was. Depends on your parents, right? Also depends on your birth order. Like, if you're the firstborn, you had the, young, you had the earliest curfew. Okay? And then you, you kept it so well, you must have earned better curfews for your younger siblings. How did they get to stay out two and three hours later than us? Anyway, if let's just pick a number. Let's say your curfew was 11 o'clock. I know for some of you that's like crazy. Talk. My parents would have never let me. Oh, those parents are terrible. you know. But let's just say it was 11. Whatever your curfew was. If your curfew was 11, did you ever show up 30 minutes early just to be safe? I mean, anybody else, like, my curfew's out. i got to be home at 10.30 just to be safe. I might have a flat tire, you know. I'm going to be there. No. Why? Because we're 16. We're 26 or 36 or 40. It doesn't matter how old you are. You're not going to get You're not coming home a half hour early. No, 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 no. I can tell you at. 10.59 in 30 seconds. I'm coming around the, the driveway on two wheels, 80 miles an hour, In the brake, and I'm rushing through like Kramer. Made it! At 11.000 on the dot. Woo! Made it again. Because here's the deal, though. If the issue is curfew, and it's 11 o'clock is your curfew, but you cross the line by five minutes, you have some angry parents, you may have a little consequence, but in in the course of life, nobody cares today how many times you were five, ten, or fifteen minutes late at curfew back in the 80s. Cross the line, no big deal. There's not big consequences for breaking curfew. And even though there's a propensity, propensity in all of us to want to know where the line is and to live on the line or close to the line in most arenas of life, it's not all that big a deal if you don't. There's not like lingering consequences in most arenas of life. But I want you to write this down. But when you cross certain lines morally... You pay, pay, pay for the rest of your life. And in this particular arena of life, it means some kids grow up without a dad in the home. Kids grow up wondering which weekend is with mom. It also means that people live with an unbelievable amount of secrets and guilt they carry through their whole life. And it potentially means that people live their lives and never experience intimacy the way God designed you to experience intimacy. Just because of one weekend, or because of one spring break, or because of one season of your life where you lived life over the edge in as much as you regret it and as much as you have repented as much as you have said I'm so sorry so sorry so sorry you cross certain lines morally and you pay 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 for a long long time now with that in mind I want you to use your imagination one more time and this time I'm gonna make you God if you were God And you had seen throughout all of human history the devastation that was caused to marriages and families and especially kids by people abusing this gift, this gift of intimacy. If you were God and you had seen all of the devastation, what would you say about this issue of immorality? You've seen all the kids that have grown up confused because of it. Can I tell you what you would say? You would say, run! And God would say to you, run! Because I see what you don't see. And while you're busy talking, 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 and living, 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 I see the dump truck coming. And I don't have the time, I don't have the margin, I don't have the 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 space to explain everything to you. And you're not old enough, you're still in a high chair. You're not you're not wise enough, you're still on the stool to understand it anyway. So I'm just telling you to run. And some of us do run. We run because we trust our heavenly Father. And others, like little children in the high chair, say, why? And as a parent, you know what this is like with your own kids. How many times have I tried to warn my kids? Listen, I overwarned my kids because of my life experience and walking through so much tragedy with so many dozens and dozens and dozens of families. I, my kids call me the prophet of doom, okay? Okay. I can always see the worst case scenario. It's not because I'm a prophet of doom. It's just because I'm a pastor who's walked through a whole lot of junk with so many people. So I overwarn them. And you can ask Josh and Kristen... Their whole life in high school, i say, you know what's going to happen? You know what's going to happen? You know, you know, and they're like rolling their eyes going, Dad, why are you freaking out? You know, why are you so upset? You're such an overreactor. And I am. I wear that badge honestly and sometimes even proudly. I am an overreactor. And the reason why I get so upset or warn them, the reason why we warn our kids as parents is because we are informed and they're not we see what they don't see and we you go all the way back to when they're a toddler you see so much potential in their life you love them so much as a toddler you just want you just want the best for them as a toddler that they're going to grow up and have all their dreams and be everything that God wants them to be but you also know that if they eat that or if they touch that or if they thick, stick that in there it's over Or if they stay too long at that event, or if they get involved with the wrong activity, or with the wrong people, that they'll never make it to their potential. So as parents, because because of that, we don't have any choice at times to seem like we are the overreactors. In order to protect them. Protect them from what they It's not that we don't trust them. It's that we don't trust their experience. And we don't trust the weirdos and the traffic around them. They don't understand what they don't know. Remember my story? Two 10-year-olds abducted from a rest area. It's a true story. Why didn't we listen to what they taught us in school? Why didn't we listen to my aunt who just warned us two or three minutes ago? What made us think that we could stay a safe distance away from this weirdo? I don't know. We were ten. When I felt that hand roughly grab the back of my neck, I was scared. When my feet were lifted off the ground, my life flashed before my eyes. And instantly I knew I had messed up big time. Luckily for us, that hand on the back of my neck belonged to my Uncle Robbie. The car that we were thrown into was his big blue station wagon. And my life flashed before my eyes because I knew he's going to kill us. My Uncle Robbie had the most feared, his job made him the most feared person in the life of any elementary school boy. He wasn't a cop. My Uncle Robbie was an elementary school assistant principal. Do you know what his main job was? He spanked kids for a living. He was a professional. He had a wall full of, this is the 70s. He had a wall, maybe we should go back. He had a wall full of paddles on his wall that he was proud of. And you would go from that paddle, next time to that paddle, next time to that paddle, to just take me to jail. I don't want to go see Mr. Cowart ever again. He was a professional. He knew that kids were taught stranger danger. And he knew that kids didn't listen because they're kids. And he knew we were just kids. He also knew the dangers that lurk around wet rest areas with weirdos. So he watched us go to the bathroom. And he watched us come out. And he watched Weirdo Dude in the silk jumper walk towards us. And then to his not-so-amazement, he watched his son and his nephew walk over to Weirdo Dude's car. He promptly got in his car. He sped way too fast in a parking lot. He slammed on his brakes... And he grabbed us and threw us in the car without saying a word. Now, it was plain daylight. And if cell phones had been around back then, everybody would have had a video and everybody would have called 911, the FBI, and Homeland Security. DCF would have been on their way. Here's why this is so important. If you're not a religious person, if you're not a Christ follower, what you need to understand is this, okay? Because I know it probably doesn't make sense to you. But the truth is, what the Bible says what it says about sex, not because God is against sex. You realize God invented sex. Yay, God! Every husband, married husband, wants to say. God's not against sex. He's for it. He's not against you. He's for you. But if you fool around with this unbelievable gift from God and you abuse it, it will hurt you and hurt those around you, and you may pay for the rest of your life and their life. And if you were God and you knew all the potential consequences for abusing this incredible gift, what could you possibly say but run? And throughout the whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament, over and over and over again, prophets and teachers and apostles and Jesus himself all say when it comes to this thing, this one thing, this morality, don't you dare dance on the line, you will lose and you will pay a price. So if you have your outline I want to give you just the one verse it's going to be plenty. 1 Corinthians 6:18 verse written by Paul to the Christians in the 1st century that were in Corinth. And he's writing to a very pagan culture, a very immoral culture. We've talked about that before. And this is what God says to you and to me and to them and to us about sexual immorality. Run from sexual sin. Any questions there? Any any clarification? Do you need me to give you the Greek word for run? He's saying when you see it coming, when you see her coming, when you see him coming, when you see the whole thing kind of moving in that direction, uh-oh, spidey senses, uh, this could go bad. This could be dangerous. Don't Don't sit around and wait for it to play out. Don't flirt with sexual immorality. Don't don't gaze at it. Don't get as close to the line as you can. When you see it, you start asking yourselves, hey, what's the wise thing for me to do here? And you're going to hear the answer, run. And suddenly when you ask the what's the wise thing to do here, it becomes all too clear. Because when you consider your past experience and your current What everybody else has done, what you've seen happen in your current circumstances that you're in right now, and your future hopes and dreams—it becomes all too clear. I need to run. And then he goes on and unpacks it a little bit more because this is written two thousand years ago, but look how applicable it is even today. In this one statement, just one verse, this will be enough. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your whole, your own body. He's basically saying is what we know from, from experiences is that there's something unique about this sin, sexual sin. I mean, you can pretend that it's like stealing a racer from the kid in front of you or stealing a candy bar from the, from the corner convenience store. You can, can, can pretend that all you want. We can pretend that all sin is the same. It's sin to sin to sin. It's all in the same category. But experience has told us, and Scripture tells us, there's something unique about sexual sin. It's a sin against yourself, and it's his way of saying that, look, you may have done a lot of wrong things in your life, and you can find forgiveness from God for those wrong things, and you can even forgive yourself for those wrong things, and eventually you can even get to where you kind of chuckle about that and say, yeah, remember remember when we were kids, remember when we did that. You can kind of laugh at it, but sexual sin is... Is is more like tar. It gets everywhere. It's more like honey. It sticks to everything. So here's what I want you to write down. No matter how many times you pray, no matter how assured you are that God has forgiven you, the memories stay. Is it is the relationship and the emotion and the stars and the scars and the struggle with intimacy. That potentially follows a person through their whole lives. And when people come to me sometimes and they say, Pastor Jerry, I'm just dealing with this thing. I just can't seem to forgive myself. I can't, for, I can't forget. And I can't for, it's almost always, if not always, in this realm of morality, of sexual sin. Because it's so complicated and it's so complex. And it's not just the physical. It attaches itself to your heart and to your soul and unfortunately, it follows us all the way through our lives. And even though God forgives us, for some reason it's the most difficult thing to forgive ourselves. So I want to give you some suggestions on how you flee sexual immorality. No matter how old you are, you could be young, you could be high schooler, teenager, you, you could be a single adult, you could be married adult, you could be dating no matter where you are in life. Look, it's not easy to do, but it's simple to do. What you've got to do is you've got to set up a guardrail. Where are you going to set up a guardrail? You've got to set up a guardrail right on the edge, back here. My suggestion is if you want to make sure you never go over the edge, you set a guardrail so far back that if you were to step over the guardrail, you violate your own standard. But you don't pay for the rest of your life. Your family doesn't blow up. Your marriage doesn't. You set your guardrail to the place where everybody else is looking at you thinking, you're weird. Why are you? You're unreasonable. You're an overreactor. You want your kids and their friends all rolling their eyes going, oh, my God, your parents are just, why are they so Cautious in that area. So I want to give you this, because that's how you walk wisely. What is the wise thing to do in light of how people get involved with other people? With people that they shouldn't get involved with. What's the wise thing to do? And the only way to follow through and apply these standards were to say, you know what, I'm gonna set my goal so that if I were to compromise, there's no real consequences. I I violated my standard one, two, three, four times, but in a lifetime. And there's no consequences at all. This is my own list from walking through with dozens and dozens and dozens of people whose marriages have blown up over an affair. Over immorality. And almost all of most of them are divorced today or they're still putting the pieces back together. My own list. But I want to challenge you with these. Chatting online or facebooking with members of the opposite sex. I have seen many marriages end over this. Is it wrong to chat online with a member of the opposite sex? No. Is it wrong to facebook with a member of the opposite sex? No. Is it wise? You got to decide. Meals with the opposite sex. Eating at a restaurant, going out to eat with someone of the opposite sex that you're not married to. Is that wrong? I don't think it's wrong to eat. I don't think it's wrong. Is it wise? you got to make up your mind. Texting relationship with members of the opposite sex. By the way, just let me say this. I'm being blunt. Might as well go for it. Your spouse should know the password your smartphone to unlock it if your spouse does not know the password and if you don't know the password to your spouse's phone by the end of the day you need to give her that code you need to give him that code and i know some of you are panicked you're thinking that only gives me all day to clear out all the stuff you sir are already over the line Are there, I'll just ask it, because I'm going to be blunt. Are there conversations in your text log you want to hide from your spouse? You are dancing on the line. Are there conversations, you say, no, there's not. Yeah, because are there conversations that used to be on your text log that you have already deleted to hide from your spouse? You are over the line. Run! And let me just say there are apps now that allow you to deceive and hide how close to the line or how over the line you are. And it's not just Snapchat, but Snapchat, which deletes stuff instantly. I know, some of you use the filters, so no problem with that, but if you're Snapchatting with somebody to delete the conversation, you are way over the line, and there's not just Snapchat, there's dozens of them. If you're using Snapchat, if you're using Telegram, if you're using Wicker, if you're using Cover Me, if you're using Speak On, if you're using Bleep. I don't even know what these are, y'all. I just Googled this morning, what are the top apps for hiding conversations? And the top 20 popped up. And I wrote down six. There's hundreds i'm reluctant to even say that to you because some of you who are already over the line are looking for other other ways to cover your track but you're already in the scoffer seat so i've kind of given up on you but god would say run working late with members of the opposite sex look i get it everybody's in an office environment you can't control who you have to work with late but there's that, when you're at work, there's that chemistry, there's that energy. Everybody's working on the same goal. And you never thought he was that handsome, but boy, he's such a good leader. And you never thought that she was that attractive, but it's late. And, you, you know, I'm going to give you another one that you're not going to like. Personal trainers of the opposite sex. Oh, Jerry, he's professional. Oh, she's professional. You're being crazy. I'm just telling you what people have told me have blown up their marriages. You, I'm just telling you stories i personally heard. You decide. Here's one confiding in friends about personal problems. Hey, if you've got a friend who's of the opposite sex and he or she starts telling you about their dysfunctional marriage, you just look at them and say, stop right there. Use that tone, please. You said, but that'll hurt their feelings. Yes, it will. Hurt their feelings. And don't hurt your marriage. And don't hurt your kids. And don't hurt your family. Tell them to get a counselor. You're not a counselor. Confiding in a member of the opposite sex about what's happening in your marriage is none of their business. And it sets you right on that edge. A level of intimacy that you should never have. Never have entered into I know that these are tough, and I could go on. We've done enough. The issue is to what degree are you willing to go to to protect what's most important to you? Everybody says the same thing. Family is the most important thing. At funerals, that's what they say. At deathbeds, that's what they say. My family is the most important thing. Really? What degree would you go to to go the extra mile to protect what you're going to say someday is the most important thing. And you protect it at awkward and unreasonable distances, extreme distances that people just don't understand, that people will say, you're just a fuddy-duddy, and they don't even use that term, whatever the new term for that is. Not because it's right or it's wrong, but because it's wise. And I've talked to many people who've gotten themselves in in a mess morally. They haven't had sex yet, but they're involved and they're emotionally having an affair. They lean on this person who they're not married to. And most of them would do anything to get out of that situation. They would spend any amount of money to correct and to move away from that. But they're, they're too far gone. They're already in a position of, I can't get out because if I have to confess it, it's going to blow up and there's going to be so much pain. and shrapnel everywhere. They would do anything. If you told them, look, for $100,000, I'll get you a time machine and you can go back in time and you can remake that very bad decision that unwise decision they would leverage their house they would sell their car they would go into their 401k they would get hundred thousand dollars if you could get to a time machine and stop that mistake from happening you would do it now what i'm saying is why don't you just do something extreme on this side of that cliff instead of waiting till you go over as you think of through this grid because of my past experience and my current circumstances and responsibilities and my future hopes and dreams, I hope that you will ask God, God, what's the wise thing for me to do? And you're going to hear him say, run, some of the time. When you see all those people, those temptations coming, God, what's the wise thing for me to do? Run. And you know what? Some of us, what we're already saying, I'm already running, God. I saw it coming. I didn't even have to ask what the wise thing to do is. I know, I'm running. And he'll say, run, and you'll say, yeah, I'm with you, God. I trust you. Sometimes he'll say, one, and you'll say, I don't even understand what's going on. But you know what? I trust you, God. If you're telling me to run, I'm going to run. Even though this seems pretty vanilla, this seems pretty just fine. But I'm running because I trust you. I've seen enough. I've experienced enough. I'm willing to walk wisely with you, God. You tell me what to do, and I'll do it. That was our prayer from a couple of weeks ago. God, help me to to know the wise thing to do and then do the right thing even when it's hard. My question for you today is, will you run? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know this is a tough, tough message. Uncomfortable for some of us. Father, please give us the courage to just face up to what we've heard and what we've felt. And give us the wisdom to ask the question, what's the wise thing for me to do and to follow through? Father, for the men here today that are dancing on the edge, give them the courage to just step back. For the women here today who are emotionally dancing on the edge, give them the courage to step back. For the teenager father who has just allowed culture to sweep him or her along, give them the courage to stand up and say, you know what, this is my life and God has given me one opportunity and I I want to get it right. Father, just give us the courage to face the onslaught of culture and to find the safe place to remove us from the edge, far away from the edge, for the sake of our marriages and for the sake of our kids and for the sake of our future marriages or kids. Give us the wisdom to ask the question and answer honestly. To pray the prayer every day God, give me the wisdom to know what's right and the courage to do what's right, even when it's hard. God, help us to all do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's Mel. If what you've heard has made you think you might be walking too close to the edge, let me encourage you to review your worship guide online throughout the week and know that we're always praying for you. Have a great week. See ya.